Hello, and welcome to another episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth. I'm Eric Pye, Manager of Member Products and Services at CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host for this episode. Our guest today is Stephen Bergstrom, Accounting Instructor at SAIT, CPA Education Foundation Board Member, and a former manager of Canadian Forces Camps overseas. Over the course of this episode, we'll be discussing the difference between learning and education, Stephen's experience in Bosnia and Afghanistan, and his work with the next generation of accountants. Did you hear that head office is implementing new diversity and inclusion? Less than 10% of C-suite positions at Canada's 100 companies need to be more socially responsible. Big data represents a potential windfall of $30 billion for Canada. Do a comprehensive review of its tax system. 70% of Albertans say the economy is too dependent on oil and gas. Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. Okay, welcome, uh, Stephen. I have to tell you, I'm really excited to have you as a guest today. We've met several times at networking events and convocations and conferences and SAIT accounting club events and so on. But this is the first chance, I think, that we've really had a chance to speak at length and perhaps go a little bit deeper than you do at a networking event. <laughs> so yeah, lo really looking forward to. Uh, could you say hello and a few words about yourself before we get started? Well, thanks, Eric. And I'm really looking forward to this as well. Um, as you said, I'm very involved in a lot of the CPA functions through the Education Foundation, Western School of Business, and of course, my time as an instructor at SAIT. Um, really looking forward to talking a little bit about those different experiences. Great. Well, let's get started then. So in our last episode, uh, Gerald Matthews posed the question, what's the difference between learning and education? And I wondered if you could maybe start by speaking to that question. Hmm. I wouldn't say this is a textbook definition, but when I think of education, I think of a, a formal process, whether it's post-secondary, online, there's a curriculum, there's a set learning objective, there's formality to it. And usually at the end, there's some sort of tangible result, like a degree, a diploma, a certificate of achievement. Congratulations, Eric, you completed this course. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> when I think of learning, I think of a much broader process. E education, I... I believe has a start and an end. There's a specified time period, whether it's a, a one-hour webinar, whether it's a four-year degree program, the two-and-a-half-year PEP program, but there's a formal beginning and a formal ending. Learning to me is something that happens throughout our entire lives. It's an ongoing process. It's, it encompasses that formal education but it's not restricted to a formal environment. We literally learn every day. Uh, some things are very large learnings. You start a new job and you're learning how the company operates and how, they're, how they do their business. Or it can be very simple and informal, like learning how to say hello in a foreign language. And what, what do you think is the effect of those two different things on a person? I think when we stop learning, we stop 
we stop growing as individuals. Learning is so much of a a process of developing who we are and becoming better at what we do. I think what education does, much more than teaching debits and credits and how to prepare financial statements, I think the formal education teaches students how to learn. And if we know how to learn, we can be put into any situation and adapt to it. Right. So it sounds like to you the the, the learning piece is very much a lifelong thing. Um, how do you think education can really contribute to that as we, say, get older? Certainly as educational institutions have evolved, there are so many more opportunities for adult learners to come back to school, part-time, distance. Many institutions offer online programs uh, where you can work at your own speed in your own location. I myself did my master's degree entirely online. Actually, during the time I was working overseas, it was a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful ability to be able to work on my studies and, and enhance my abilities regardless where I was in the world. Right. So would you say then that uh, an education then perhaps gives us a, a formalized way to ensure that we continue learning? Like if we keep taking courses, if we keep enrolling in courses, they both give us a framework, but they also perhaps give us a motivation to perhaps not forget to learn? Absolutely. I, th I think the formal education process really teaches us how to learn how mm. to absorb information, how to adapt to new situations. In the business world today especially, it's evolving so quickly, it's changing so rapidly that adaptability to new situations and, and new environments is so critical for any business person, but particularly for accountants. Mm -hmm. For sure. You're a teacher, of course. What kind of learning do you see happening in your classrooms? Uh, very wide range of learning. Some students are grasping the technical concept. So this is what the accounting handbook says, and this is how you do the transaction. Others are learning the concept and the principle behind the accounting rule. What is the accounting rule trying to accomplish? And then figuring out for themselves what transaction to record or what debits and what credits to meet that goal of the accounting rule. I find learning takes place on both sides of the classroom. Uh, it's not just the students learning from me. I learn from them as well. I often joke with my students, there's often five different ways to explain something. It's just a matter of going through them all until I find the one that, that clicks with you. But uh, even as recently as yesterday, I had a student asking a question. I went through about three or four different ways of explaining it, and she still didn't quite get it, didn't quite grasp. So I grabbed my whiteboard marker and scribbled a little diagram on the whiteboard. I said, oh, that's great. I understand that. And as she walked away, I sort of looked at the diagram and thought, okay, i got to remember to do this next semester so that everybody understands. Right, yeah. So even I'm learning as I go along on you know, better ways of delivering the material, better ways of explaining the concepts. Besides uh, learning to be a better 
teacher or instructor, what are some of the other things that you've learned from the students that you teach? I've come to have a real appreciation for the breadth and diversity of human beings, human behavior. You put 40 students in a room and you're going to get quite a mix of um, ethnic backgrounds, religious beliefs, languages, cultures, uh, genders, uh, past experiences. And every student that comes into the classroom has their own unique story. And to me, at least, they're not just faces in a crowd or numbers on a, uh, on a class list. These are individuals. They all have their own stories. They all have their own successes. They all have their own issues outside of the classroom. So it, it really, I find, has taught me to appreciate the diversity of our, our culture. Great. You know, you, you talk about the, the students and the learning and the kind of teaching each other and teaching you and so on. Do the students in your classrooms have a, a different backgrounds in terms of how much education they have, say, in accounting or um, that kind of thing? To some degree, yes. In our degree program, some of the students have started at SAIT and they've progressed all the way through the degree program until they get to my class. Others have transferred in from other institutions. And particularly in, in the case of an evening class, there can be students who are actually formally registered at another institution who are just taking a one-off evening class um, through SAIT. Mm -hmm. So although they all have to have a certain comparable level of, of background knowledge and, and prerequisite courses, every individual comes into the classroom with a slightly different understanding of those prerequisites. Right. Uh, depending on what institution, what instructor, how long ago the course was. So one of the things I've learned as an instructor is my need to be adaptable to the needs of the classroom. Mm. And if the class doesn't understand the background material, I need to, I need to back up, fill in some of those gaps, and then continue on. Right, right. And if you're a student uh, coming in with a lot of learning already, do you think that makes it easier or harder to learn inside the classroom? I'd say it's probably a double-edged sword. Um, in some ways, uh, we look at things, if we've already taken this material, we've already learned this material. And I, I have had a number of students over the years who have foreign designations, foreign degrees that were not recognized when they came to Canada. So they know the material, but they have to go through the process and, and become recognized in Canada. And on one hand, you might think that it's easier for them because they're already familiar with material. Oh, I know this. But it's a double-edged sword because they often end up sitting in class. Yes, yes, I know this. I've, I've, I've done this for years. You don't need to teach it to me. So it's it's a little bit of a, in one sense, it's easier for them because they already have the knowledge. Yeah. But the motivation piece can often be more difficult because they do already know it. They, they, they're impatient to just write the exam and move on. 
Right, yeah. Do you get any situations where people are perhaps resistant to things that are done slightly differently here, where they perhaps have to unlearn and then relearn? I wouldn't exactly say resistance, but again, coming back to the concept that learning takes place on both sides of the, the classroom, I've had some fascinating discussions over the years with foreign students who will come up to me and say, well, this is how we do it in my country. And it it's often fascinating to me to just look at how different countries have different accounting methods or different accounting standards. Right. Well, talking about doing things differently um, and in other countries, I wanted to maybe switch a little bit to uh, share some of your experiences working with the uh, military. You hired, uh, sorry, you were hired to manage the accounting uh, department at a base. And I think there were actually two different bases that you worked at. Yes. Before we dig into those experiences, could you give us a bit of context? So, you know, what was your professional experience before you started doing this work, were you an accountant already, and how did the opportunity arise? Yes, I'd, uh, I'd been an accountant for a few years already. Uh, worked my way up through a few different companies, typically in the manufacturing field. Um, did some work for some food and beverage companies. And uh, yeah, we, at Networking events, we always talk about the power of networking and the, the importance of building that that network. Well, the Bosnian opportunity came up through just networking and, and talking with individuals that I knew. And somebody mentioned that uh, this particular company was working on a project in Bosnia and they were looking for somebody to run their accounting department. And I thought at the time, you know, that that would be kind of an interesting thing to get involved in. That's, that's not your typical accounting job. Right. Um, so one thing led to another, and almost before I knew it, I was on a plane over to Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Exciting. So you went over as a civilian. You weren't actually with the military. So basically how it worked, uh, historically, when the military deploys soldiers to an overseas deployment, uh, the soldiers go over for a six-month time frame. Then they rotate every six months. But there are some activities that need to happen to run an army camp. Uh, somebody has to cook the food. Somebody has to arrange for waste disposal. Uh, somebody has to do the living accommodations and so on and so forth. So historically what was happening was the military was sending trained soldiers over to do those jobs. The problem with that is you have a soldier who is trained in tactics and military maneuvers, perhaps some specialty in, the, in, in electronics or communications, and you say to that soldier, okay, for the next six months, you're going to flip burgers on the, on the grill. Uh-huh. It's not what he's trained for, yeah. it's not what he's good at, and it's not what he wants to do. Mm. So you end up with a very demoralized soldier. I was going to say at the end of six months, but it probably takes the end of six minutes before he becomes really disorganized. <laughs> yeah. So the basic concept of this project was for the military to hire a civilian company. Right. We ran the camp. Uh, we did the accommodations, basically the same as you would do a hotel. Uh-huh. We cooked the food. We shoveled the snow. We mowed the grass. 
we bought all the supplies that were of a non-military nature, you know, pens, pencils, photocopier paper, and so on. Right. And what that did was it freed up the soldiers to go out and do the peacekeeping work that they were actually trained to do. Right. So kind of a division of duties kind of thing. Exactly. I can imagine also that that would uh, allow for some kind of long-term continuity as well, because if you have soldiers shipping in every six months and changing over, there would be liable to be some (laughs) issues at the beginning of a cycle. Every rotation, every six months, the old soldiers would go out, the new soldiers would come in, and there was a very short crossover, uh, simply because of the size of the camp. You don't have enough room to have two groups of soldiers at the same time. Right. So often the incoming soldier would have one day with his departing colleague. Mm-hmm. And that one day, they're busy focused on handing over, you know, here's what's going on, here's the issue of the day. There's just no opportunity to share information on, you know, here's where you go to eat, here's where you go to sleep, all that sort of stuff. Right. So having a civilian company there essentially permanently, mm-hmm. passing through all those rotations. You're absolutely right. It did bring a lot more continuity, a lot more consistency to the soldier's experience yeah. and took a lot of pressure off them. They, they knew they could just go to one desk. Okay, here's, here's where your billet is. Here's the times for the mess hall. Everything was taken care of for them. Right, right. And so the purpose of your work, uh, of course, was, um, we kind of established that, was you you were doing the accounting for the camps. Yeah. Um, As much as possible, we tried to buy locally whenever possible. Right. Uh, Both economies, uh, Bosnia, their economy had been shattered by the Yugoslavian civil war. Uh, Afghanistan, the economy was somewhat in shambles after the invasion. So we try to, wherever possible, to source locally, mm-hmm. buy locally, mm-hmm. uh, try to stimulate the local economy as much as possible. If we had to subcontract for something, we tried to find a local contractor. If we had to buy something as much as possible, we tried to buy it locally. The one thing that was usually a bit of a hiccup and we had to source internationally from Canada was anything electronic. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, Canada uses 110 volts. Over there, it's 220. So right. um, any, the, the camp operated on 110 volts, just like Canada. So mm-hmm. any, anything electronic had to come from home. Right. Gotcha. What were some of the biggest differences you noticed there in regards to culture? And the, you, know, you mentioned the economy being kind of shattered, uh, but the culture and the lifestyle and any other differences that you noticed? Overall, it was an absolutely fascinating experience, uh, experience of a lifetime, really. In Bosnia, the people that I met out over there, universally wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, very friendly, very open, uh, very hardworking people. One of the biggest differences that struck me at first was, given the status of the economy, everything was on a cash basis. Right. In North America, we're used to money being almost invisible. Mm -hmm. We go to the store and we tap our credit card. We buy something from a supplier. They give us 30 days to pay. And typically, that 30 days, we do an e-transfer or Mm -hmm. 
just transfer the money into their bank account and everything's paid and we move on. The economies in both Afghanistan and, and Bosnia, because they'd been through so much during the war, uh, were very much... Uh, What's the old joke in God we trust, all others pay cash? <laughs> uh, it was very much you pay me first and yeah. then I will give you. Right. Uh, so it, it was quite the experience in both countries to go to the bank, withdraw huge sums of money, uh, sometimes up to a quarter million dollars in cash, mm -hmm. and then walk down the street and get back in the, into the car. Right. Uh, especially in a, a, a place like Afghanistan, it, it was very nerve-wracking. It was maybe 15, 20 meters mm. from the door of the bank to the armored vehicle that I had arrived in. But that whole 20 meters, I was very aware of the fact that I was carrying a very huge amount of cash. And all it would take is one person with an automatic weapon and pick up the pieces afterwards, so to speak. Right. You weren't tempted to go and work for Brinks when you got back to Canada? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's certainly not every accountant that gets to ride around in an armored vehicle with a soldier escort. And huge amounts of money in their hands. <laughs> um, what did that do for accounts payable and receivable? <laughs> well, with everything being on a cash basis, there was actually very little in terms of, uh, of accounts receivable and accounts payable. Um, actually had a, a, a bit of a humorous discussion with the internal auditor at one point who wanted to know how I calculated my allowance for bad debts. <laughs> I said, well, I don't have an allowance for bad debts. <laughs> you have to, until I explained that it was a purely cash economy. Right. There, there is no such thing as accounts receivable, accounts payable. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay. I guess you don't need allowance for doubtful accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lots and lots of cash flow accounting, I guess. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think one of the biggest things that struck me when I was over there was the comparison between our lifestyle, what we're accustomed to, and what life over there often is. There was one day in Afghanistan, we were driving to the bank, and there was one building in the city. Before the war, they had only finished the concrete skeleton of the building. So there were no walls, there were no, no finish to it. It was just the concrete floors and the concrete pylons holding it up. And one entire side of the building had collapsed. The, the floors had just pancaked down on top of each other. On the other half of the building, People had taken scrap metal, plywood, cardboard, whatever they could get their hands on, and made walls on the side of this building. And there were people living on that half of the building. Mm -hmm. And when you see something like that, when you drive through a city and virtually every building has bullet holes or mortar damage on it, it's much harder to get upset by some of the little problems that we face. Like, I, I only have two bars on my cell phone. What's going on here? <laughs> or, or, you know, that, that guy in traffic cut me off. It, it, it's much harder to get upset about little things like that when you've seen what some people live with. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I, I lived in Africa as a child, and so I can relate to that uh, really, really well. Um, is there anything that you learned about accounting in your time over there that you feel has helped you in your career since then? I wouldn't say any particular accounting transactions per se, but just the the experience of learning how different cultures work. And the, the connection there with accounting is uh, accounting isn't just debits and credits, producing financial statements. Accounting is sharing information mm -hmm. and helping people make decisions. And in different cultures, different countries, the decision process is often very different than the process we go through in Canada. Mm -hmm. So it was more getting that appreciation of different ways of doing things and, and different, different information that people were looking for and, and just how different cultures make their decisions. Right. So long-term, short-term, those kinds of things. Yeah. Right. Afghanistan especially, it's much more based on relationship. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about what price are we going to charge. It's well, let's sit down and have a coffee and let's learn more about your, your family and your background. And it was much less based on the amount and much more based on that relationship that was established. Do I like you? Do, Do I, I like you? you? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. What would you say was, if, if you were to look back, what would you say would be the biggest highlight or memory of your time in either country? Ooh. So many wonderful memories, it's hard to pick one. But I think one of the biggest highlights is, interestingly enough, only going back a couple of years. Since my time over in Bosnia, a friend of mine has heard story after story after story of my time over there and developed quite an interest in the area. And he suggested summer of uh, 2018 that he and I go over there. And we took about a month and went to all the places that I used to work and a couple of places that I'd always wanted to see when I was over there but never got the chance. Mm. And the reason I say that's a highlight, it was fascinating going back to the place that I had worked and seeing how things had recovered. It, it was very inspirational, actually, to see how Bosnia, Croatia, the general area has rebounded and recovered uh, from the Yugoslavian Civil War. There were fields that I distinctly remember overgrown with weeds, tangled, and big yellow tape mm -hmm. around the outside of the field. Danger, mines. Right. Because at the time, Bosnia was one of the most heavily landmined countries in the world. Now, went back a couple of years ago, and that same field is now being farmed. The farmer's out there in his tractor trundling down the field. Buildings that had been quite literally blown apart, mm -hmm. now ultra-modern apartment high-rise, and you'd never know that, that it had never been that way. Yeah. So it, it was truly a highlight to see how the whole area had rebounded from when I was working over there. Yeah, it must have been great to feel, no matter how much or little, that you'd had a part to play in that too. 
Well, I give I, I give the local people all the credit. It, you know, they did the work. They they did the rebounding. But you're right. There is a, a small amount of pride that you know I, in a, a minuscule way, I had I contributed to this somehow. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Great story. Let's shift uh, gears again, Stephen, to uh, your instructing at SATE and training the future generation of accountants. You've been an accounting instructor at SATE for more than 14 years, is that right? Yes. Uh, what about teaching do you like so much? Because I, I really get the impression that you love teaching. <laughs> Every time I meet you, you're just exuding love for the craft. Yeah, I, I think back to the convocation ceremonies last year and uh, Rachel Miller gave a speech on the difference between a job, a career, and a calling. Mm -hmm. And I really think for me, teaching is a calling. Uh, if there is such a thing as being destined to do something, then I think I was destined to be a teacher. What I love about it is that aha moment when you're explaining a difficult concept and you can see the students mulling it over and, and trying to figure it out. And then it's almost like those old Saturday morning cartoons where the character gets an idea and bing, little light bulb goes off above their head. Yeah. You can almost see the little light bulbs going off across the classroom. Right. And to me, that's a very rewarding experience to, to, to feel that I had some ability to help them understand a difficult concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever refer to your experiences from Bosnia and Afghanistan when you're teaching? Any student or former student who's listening to this podcast just rolled their eyes at that questionnaire. <laughs> <laughs> so three uh, times a lesson? <laughs> because I'm always uh, telling stories. I, I, I believe one of the ways we learn is in, instead of just reciting rules and, and calculating formulas – is to try to make it real for mm -hmm. the students and try to connect what we're talking about in class to what happens in the real world. So, yes, you know, probably three times a class I'm talking <laughs> about my past experiences. And, well, at one company I saw this or at one company I did that. Right, yeah. It's incredible the power of storytelling. You know, It's such a big thing now in teaching, in counseling, in all kinds of areas. So uh, I'm sure those add a lot of value to your students. I've had a number of students over the years say that it, it really helps them relate to the material, that this isn't something they're just learning for the sake of learning it, that this is something they're actually going to use out in the real world. Yeah. And, and you, you've talked about the light bulbs going off um, when you're teaching. Uh, what are some of the other things that you really love about working with students? I, I love the interaction with students, the fresh ideas, Many times I'll have a student ask, why do we do it this way? And I think that's an important question for all accountants to think about is we're not just blindly following the rules that are in the CPA handbook. Those rules have a purpose. There's a goal in mind. Mm -hmm. And so by asking the question, why am I doing it this way? What we're really asking is, am I doing it the way that will accomplish the goal that the rule was originally designed to to achieve. Mm -hmm. I, I find 
I find it very refreshing working with the students, the different perspectives that they have. I, I just love being in the classroom. Mm. Okay, not, not obvious at all. Um, <laughs> so we've talked a bit there about what you're getting from the teaching experience. Um, what do you think your students are getting from you in terms of their education and their learning and their career? Hopefully, one of the things that I hope comes across in my classes is my passion for what I do. I've truly had, a, a in my opinion, a fantastic accounting career. I attribute a lot of the really amazing things that I've been able to do directly to the fact that I got my accounting designation and I got the education behind it and that I've kept learning since I, since I earned my designation. And I hope that in the classroom, some of that passion, some of that enjoyment of my career comes across to the students and maybe inspires them to continue on, get the designation, keep learning for the rest of their lives. Right. And that's an interesting point because I, I want to ask you next, and perhaps your passion is going to help here, but do you ever have students that are in your class but obviously have no interest in accounting? I have. Um, I remember one individual who came to me for some extra help and in the midst of doing some tutoring, students said, you know, I actually hate accounting. After I graduate, I have no intention of doing accounting. I just, I kind of looked and I said, well, this may be a silly question, but then why are you taking accounting? Right. Well, my dad's making me. Mm -hmm. And there are a few uh, I find every semester who take a course for the wrong reason. They're, they're being told they have to take this course or they take accounting because they've heard you can make a lot of money as an accountant. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there are some very lucrative accounting careers, but there's a long process of learning to, to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like accounting, it's not going to be worth it in the long run. Right. So what would you do with a student like that, uh, you know? What I try and do is, and again, this kind of comes back to my passion and, and my enjoyment. I said to one student that uh, there's the old expression, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm. And I said to the student, I haven't worked a day in the last 14 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I try to share that philosophy with those students who are... are maybe not enjoying accounting, maybe not doing what they want to be doing. Between your drive to work in the morning, the time you spend at your job, lunch break, the time you spend driving home, thinking about it in the evening, thinking about it on the weekend, the vast majority of our, li of our waking lives is spent work-related. Mm -hmm. If you're not happy with what you're doing, what a waste of such a large percentage of your life. Right. And that's what I try to do is encourage those students, find your passion. Mm -hmm. Don't 
take a program because somebody else tells you to take it. Right. Take it because it's something you really want to do. Yeah. Great. As a career advisor myself, I would say, yeah, that's that's great advice to them. One of the things I've also heard is that uh, often when you get to senior levels, one of the biggest impediments to promotion is a lack of understanding of accounting. So I, I guess even if somebody does do some accounting and then moves on to do something else afterwards, it's it's never going to work against them. I've often heard it said that accounting is the scorecard of business. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, this is how companies evaluate themselves. Um, the management team needs to have at least a basic understanding of how accounting works. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily need to do the journal entries. They don't necessarily need to produce the financial statements. But they need to understand what those financial statements are telling them. Mm. Yeah. And it always amazes me how many CPAs I meet who aren't actually doing accounting anymore, have moved on into different things. But that grounding is still giving them a really, really good sense of what their business is all about. Well, one thing I often find with uh, open houses, networking events, uh, talking with new students who are thinking about going into accounting or talking to parents of students who are thinking about going into accounting. And I often hear the statement, well, why would I want my child to go into accounting? I I hear computers are taking all the accounting jobs away. (laughs) And... The problem with that is they're thinking of accounting as it was in the 1950s. Mm. The green visor, the pocket protector, sitting in the back room with an adding machine and mile-long roll of, of adding machine tape. Right. Computers have taken that job away. Mm-hmm. Data analytics and uh, artificial intelligence, so much of those day-to-day transactions, that dreary grunt work that was so unappealing about accounting, that's all automated now, or at the very least, mostly automated now. And what that does is it frees up the accountant's time for analysis and interpretation and explaining to management, here's what the problem is, here's what I recommend that you do, Mm -hmm. which to me is the fun part of accounting anyway. Right, right. Moving a little bit away from the teaching part, but when you consider that you're contributing to the next generation of accountants, what are your thoughts there? One of the highlights of my year is going to convocation. Mm. Whether it's SAIT's convocation and seeing my students go across the stage and get their diploma or get their degree, or whether it's the CPA convocation and seeing candidates going across the stage and, and being given their uh, th- those all-important three letters behind their name. Mm-hmm. It's the highlight of the year for me, um, seeing those, those people going across the stage. You know, it's funny. You never see anybody sad <laughs> when they're going across the stage. It's... Everybody's so happy, everybody's so proud, and it's a very rewarding experience for me. They did the work. They put in the long hours. They did the studying. It's their accomplishment. But there is kind of a, a proud father moment mm-hmm. as I'm My watching. My babies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. it yeah. 
I, I feel like in some small way I contributed to that. Yeah. Awesome. And what do you think the future generation of accountants is going to be like? Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier about the the 1950s accountant mm. hiding out in the back office, uh, the green visor, the pocket protector, and just spending all day crunching numbers. Mm. That accountant is a thing of the past. Mm. Uh, the accountant of the future I see as being a business advisor. I see the accountant of the future not doing journal entries, not preparing financial statements, or at the very least doing just un the occasional unusual journal entry and, mm -hmm. and letting the system take care of everything else. But I, I see the accountant of the future as being much more integrated with the management of the organization and providing that advice, that guidance. And if you look at the direction of accounting education, both at the post-secondary level and at the CPA PEP level, there is still some technical material. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more on the communication skills and the analysis and the interpretation, looking at situations and making recommendations. And I see that being much more the role of the accountant of the future, mm -hmm. much less sitting in the back office by themselves and much more upfront, shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the management team, helping the organization be successful. Right. Do you ever wish that you could go back and be kind of like a, an accountant starting off your career in that way as opposed to the way that you did? You know, it's funny. I'm going to... I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on that question, if you don't mind, Eric. I think at one point or another, we all look back at our careers and say, oh, I wish I had done this, or I wish I'd had that opportunity, or how different would things be in if I had? Mm -hmm. And there are moments when, because I enjoy teaching so much, I wish I had gotten into teaching years earlier than I had, just so I could have enjoyed it longer. But then I remind myself that we are the accumulation of all of our experiences, the, the mm -hmm. people we are. And this is kind of coming back to the whole topic of learning versus education. The people we are, we have learned to be through our experiences over the course of our career. And if I had started teaching earlier... I would have missed out on some of those great opportunities, those amazing experiences that I'm able to relate to the students in the classroom. And you wouldn't have all those stories that they roll their eyes up to. <laughs> I wouldn't have all those stories. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, that sounds like a good place to finish off. It's really been great chatting with you, Stephen. Thanks very much, Eric. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your, your story. CPAs have the opportunity to talk about anything and everything on Straight from the CPA's Mouth. Stephen, is there a question you would like to pose for our next guest? Well, I'm going to tie this into our theme today of, of learning and, and particularly lifelong learning. The question I would pose to the next guest is, what mistake have you made that you've learned from the most? Sounds like a great question. Thanks, Stephen. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap things up? 
just really enjoyed the opportunity, and uh, thanks very much. There you have it, everyone, straight from the CPA's mouth. Stephen, thank you for joining us today, uh, and thank you to all of you for listening. Make sure to tune in to the next episode to hear a CPA discussing learning from a mistake. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes or have feedback that you'd like to share, feel free to email us at knowledgecenter at cpaalberta.ca or leave us a message on social media. Straight from the CPA's Mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to $1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the Heshi CPA Knowledge Centre. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the Heshi CPA Knowledge Centre and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.